Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Coming to you live from New York, I'm Zane Asher. In for my colleague Julia Tatley. This is First Move, and here is your need to know. Stimulus stakes, the White House comes up with new proposals. Frozen fears, new COVID outbreaks cause China to sound the alarm over food. And back in the sky, the Brazilian airline returns the 737 MAX to service. It is Wednesday, my friends. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. So good to have you with us on this busy Wednesday for global investors. Let's begin with a quick check of the markets for you. U.S. futures are pointing to a mostly higher open, uh, mostly higher open just in terms of the Dow and the S&P 500 across the board as Wall Street applauds the latest vaccine milestones and awaits a mega IPO launch. Food delivery service DoorDash begins trading on the New York Stock Exchange today. Positive movement in the U.S. in terms of emergency aid negotiations, in terms of stimulus package. That is also boosting sentiment as well. The SE 500 is set to open in record territory after a come-from-behind win for the Bulls on Tuesday. SE 500 closing above the 3,700 mark for the first time ever. That's a big milestone too. Stocks are up in Europe as well as investors await the latest ECB policy meeting of 2020 tomorrow. Lagarde and company are expected to signal new monetary support for the Eurozone as well. Asian stocks were mixed. The Shanghai Composite fell more than 1%. New numbers show Chinese consumer prices falling for the first time in over a decade. Meantime, SoftBank shares rallied in Japan and reports that the company is discussing plans to go private. In vaccine news today, the UAE says that China's jab has an efficacy rate of 86%. U.S. health officials meet tomorrow to discuss the safety and efficacy of the Pfizer-BioTech vaccine, the shot that is now being administered to people in the United Kingdom. Along with the science, there is hope for stimulus. The White House has put its offer on the table as negotiations heat up in Washington, D.C. Let's get more uh, on all this in terms of our drivers. The White House is now proposing a package that would include sending $600 stimulus checks out to many Americans, but they would be instead of a $300 a week enhanced unemployment benefit that lawmakers are proposing. Lauren Fox joins us live now. So uh, Lauren, just just walk us through this new stimulus proposal that was uh, put on the table by Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Uh, the original $1,200 direct payments that we saw earlier in the year, that's now down to $600. And plus, there's no sort of weekly unemployment insurance for those who have been left jobless. Just walk us through what what more is in this package. Well, essentially, Zane, this is a non-starter for Democratic lawmakers. They made that clear just a few hours after Mnuchin made his proposal public. What we do know about this proposal is it's different in the bipartisan proposal we've been talking about over the last couple of days in that, like you said, it 
adds a $600 benefit for Americans affected by coronavirus, but it gets rid of that $300 a week in boosted federal unemployment benefits. And that is something the Democrats say they cannot support. This feeling that you need that $300 in additional federal unemployment benefits because the people who need this money the most are the people who are not working right now. They argue just sending $600 checks, a one-time check, they argue, is not sufficient when you're trying to get targeted relief to Americans. Now, I want to take a step back because these negotiations have been a little bit of a game of whiplash over the last several hours. You saw yesterday Majority Leader Mitch McConnell arguing that maybe if the bipartisan group cannot get agreement on two outstanding sticking points, that's state and local aid for local governments, or liability insurance, a Republican red line in these negotiations, perhaps they drop both of those and move forward without them. Now, Democrats said that was a non-starter. Meanwhile, we are still waiting on whether or not this bipartisan group can actually put pen to paper and release legislative text or at least a summary of what they're working on. We've been waiting for days. We had heard originally that they'd have legislative text by Monday. Of course, now it's Wednesday. We still haven't even seen a summary of what they're working on, Zane. And so there are a lot of balls in the air right now, whether or not they can actually close these negotiations, which is nine days until the deadline still remains to be seen. Yeah, so many sticking points, as you mentioned, uh, liability insurance for businesses, uh, concerns about state and local funding. But there is so much pressure to try at least somehow to get things done. Lauren Fox, live for us there. Thank you so much. The United States has crossed 15 million confirmed coronavirus cases with an average of more than 200,000 new infections a day over the past week and record numbers of people hospitalized with the virus. Alexandra Field has more. As new coronavirus cases spread rapidly across the country, some states are shifting into crisis mode once again, enforcing more restrictions as intensive care units fill up with patients. What we do now literally will be a matter of life and death for many of our citizens. We're experiencing a surge like we've never seen. Among those with stay-at-home orders in place, California, Michigan, and North Carolina, where the governor is also enforcing a 10 p.m. curfew. We will do more if our trends do not improve. That means additional actions involving indoor restaurant dining, entertainment facilities, or shopping and retail capacity. The virus running rampant with the U.S. recording more than 215,000 new cases Tuesday. Here in Rhode Island, there's a 9.4% daily positivity rate and the nation's highest new average of new coronavirus cases per capita. Health officials treating patients inside this field hospital in Providence. More than 104,000 people nationwide are hospitalized with the virus, a dangerous record. President-elect Joe Biden outlining a coronavirus response plan for his first 100 days in office. As a country, we've been living with this pandemic for so long, we're at risk of becoming numb to its toll on all of us. His top three goals? Safely getting more children back into classrooms, promoting widespread mask wearing, and distributing vaccines to at least 100 million Americans. It's going to take some time. But I'm absolutely convinced that in 100 days we can change the course of the disease and change life in America for the better. 
Tomorrow, an FDA panel meets to consider whether the first vaccine candidate will be granted emergency use authorization in the United States. A decision is expected this week. We do feel that um, preliminarily that the success criteria have been met. But in the meantime, with most of the country likely facing a months-long wait for a vaccine, Dr. Anthony Fauci says it's important to accept the reality of the pandemic. There are a substantial proportion of the people who still think that this is not real, that it's fake news or that it's a hoax. It's extraordinary. I've never really seen anything like this. We've got to overcome that and pull together as a nation uniformly with adhering to these public health measures. Alexandra Field reporting there. The UK is advising people with significant history of allergic reactions to not to not take the Pfizer COVID vaccine. The new advice comes after two health workers suffered allergic reactions to the injection on Tuesday. Cyril Varnier has the latest from Guy's Hospital in London. So, Cyril, it is common knowledge that a lot of vaccines come with this caveat that there may be, may be um, uh, complications if you suffer from allergies, for example. Should the NHS have done more in terms of warning healthcare workers that this could be potentially the case if they suffer from allergies? Well, Zane, I think it is fair to ask that question. It is even fair to be surprised, perhaps, that people weren't apparently being screened uh, for having a severe allergy history. Um, Well, that has changed. On day two of the rollout, we learned that two of the very first Britons who got this vaccine, uh, they happened to be NHS healthcare workers, developed uh, anaphylactoid allergic reactions shortly after getting the first dose of the uh, Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. The NHS says that they gave them medical uh, treatment and that they recovered. So I think that is also important to note. The chief medical director here says this is not uncommon with new vaccines. Pfizer and BioNTech, meanwhile, say that they are fully cooperating with the regulators here, MHRA, the uh, medicines agency in the UK, um, as the invest as an investigation is going to be conducted into what exactly caused those allergic reactions. For now, though, it has changed the way the vaccine is going to be rolled out for a certain subsection of the population. And that is to say people who have had in the past severe allergic reactions either to a vaccine, to a medicine or to food. Those people will no longer be offered the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID vaccines. And just in case there is sort of uh, apprehension, it is important to note the chances, the chances of suffering from any kind of allergic reaction from this vaccine is still relatively small based on statements that Pfizer has put out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Pfizer pointed out that, you know, in the phase three clinical trial of its vaccine, that is the phase where phase where it is tried on the vaccine is is administered to tens of thousands of people. It was generally well tolerated with no uh, serious adverse effects. Uh, I am not even sure that yesterday's allergic reactions can be considered a serious adverse effect, but I'm not a doctor. We would have to wait to find out more from the NHS on that. So you're absolutely right that um reactions to vaccines do occur. And if you had asked any scientist prior to yesterday uh, what we could expect from a mass rollout, any scientist would have told you it is not the same thing administering it to 40,000 people and 40 million people. So we are going to find out a little bit more as the rollout happens. Um, And you're also right to point out the climate, of course, in which this is occurring. There are a lot of eyes on this vaccine, Zane, from the British population 
Um, we know from polls that there is a sizable part of the population that's a little bit apprehensive, that wonders if this vaccine was developed too quickly and maybe want to wait to find out a bit more about the vaccine before they, they, they get it themselves. They will obviously be looking at this information keenly, but I, I am confident that we're going to get quite a bit more information on all of this before long. All right. Um, uh, Cyril Vanier, live for us there. Thank you so much. China has gone from the epicenter of the coronavirus at the start of 2020 to a country where life has pretty much returned to near normal. But recent outbreaks have caused concern. Chinese officials say they could have come from imported frozen food. David Culver has more. Health officials in China blaming imported cases of COVID-19 for recent cluster outbreaks. They warn that it's been carried in not only by some human travelers, but also, and perhaps more alarming, on goods imported from other countries. As CNN saw firsthand, it has sparked immediate changes in the handling of international cargo that now enter China. You'll notice the crew members behind me are in full PPE from head to toe. We have been told strictly not to go within a certain distance of them. And we've also been told not to touch any of the cargo. The reason is there's growing concern here in China that the imports from other countries might be carrying the virus, particularly frozen foods. And so those who are handling that cargo as it's coming in or going out now have to undergo these new measures. While both the World Health Organization and the U.S. CDC insist there is no evidence that people can contract COVID-19 from food or food packaging, Chinese media is airing images of the strict precautions now being taken. Food transport trucks sprayed down with disinfectant, frozen seafood like shrimp and salmon, along with the surfaces of all types of packaging, all frequently tested for COVID-19. This is one of the cold chambers here in the cargo wing of Shenzhen International Airport. Now, the concern with the frozen foods has gotten so sensitive that if I were to walk in just like this, I'd have to do two weeks of quarantine as soon as I walked out. Full body suits now required for those working in these facilities. China's Ministry of Transport warning that before and after transporting the cold chain products, one should disinfect the used transportation means and body parts that may have touched the containers. Chinese health officials believe recent confirmed coronavirus cases might have been caused by contaminated imported goods. Last month, two Shanghai airport cargo handlers tested positive for COVID-19. In September, two dock workers in Qingdao handling imported frozen seafood also contracted the virus. And back in June, a massive Beijing market shut down. State media reported more than 300 people tested positive. Some have suggested that cluster outbreak might have been linked to imported salmon. Health experts say COVID-19 is tough enough to last for long periods on surfaces, but they warn... This is not the most common way by which COVID-19 spreads. In most situations, COVID-19 spreads from person to person. Uh, directly by uh, little particles in which the virus is present through the air. Still, Chinese state media are using the imported case fears to repeatedly put into question the actual origins of the virus, stressing that Wuhan is the place the disease was first identified, but probably not the place where the virus originated from sowing seeds of doubt ahead of a WHO field team's upcoming trip to China. They will investigate the origins of COVID-19 as China works to keep new cases of the virus from seeping in through its borders. David Culver, CNN, Beijing. All right, these are the stories making headlines around the world. President Trump's latest and perhaps most brazen effort to overturn the election result 
has hit another dead end. The Supreme Court on Tuesday denied a Republican attempt to block the certification of Joe Biden's victory in Pennsylvania. Hours earlier, the president suggested the court might take his side. And British Prime Minister Boris Johnson heads to Brussels later today to try to sort out a Brexit trade deal. He'll be meeting with European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. Uh, British and EU negotiators are deadlocked on three key issues, and many worry that a deal will not be reached. Uh, Anna Stewart is joining us live now in London. So, so, Anna, you've got Boris Johnson on the one hand that seems to sort of be backing down from his previous hardline approach. Uh, but on the other hand, you've got German Chancellor Angela Merkel saying that the EU will not be backing down from its core principles. So based on that, what, is, what are the chances right now of a deal getting reached by the end of the month? In recent days, they have felt poles apart, really. Now, Boris Johnson was actually in Parliament just a couple of hours ago delivering his weekly Prime Minister questions, and he said a good deal is still there to be done. But he also went on to suggest that it's the EU that needs to make a compromise. Of course, if a deal is to be reached, a compromise will be needed on both sides. The PM now heads to Brussels, as you mentioned, for this dinner. The EU Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, also the two key negotiators from either side. Now, they have a lot of meaty issues to discuss at that table, uh, fishy issues perhaps, because one of the biggest ones is uh, the issue of fishing rights, also competition law, and also who enforces or polices any deal that is reached. What we do not expect from this dinner, Zayn, is an agreement in and of itself. Essentially, these issues have been kicked up to the top of the political spectrum because talks have really got deadlocked beneath them between the two negotiation teams. So, if there is a willingness, a willingness, a sound of willingness to compromise, then perhaps that will ease talks going forwards. Timing-wise, this is interesting, there is an EU leader summit tomorrow for the 27 EU member states. Now, it was expected at one stage that perhaps there would be a future trading deal to be signed by those EU leaders. Of course, we don't expect that to happen now. We've got 22 days left of this transition period. So perhaps those EU members are going to have to keep discussing this in the weeks to come. Perhaps there'll have to be another EU summit sometime between now and the new year. Zane? Boris Johnson, Ursula von der Leyen discussing meaty issues or rather, as you say, fishy issues, because obviously fishy, uh, fisheries are a major sticking point here. Uh, Anna Stewart, live for us there. Thank you so much. Paris Saint-Germain and Istanbul Bashkir will resume their Champions League match today after Tuesday's play was suspended because of an alleged racist incident. Both teams walked off the pitch after an alleged racist comment by an official. The match will feature a new refereeing team. UEFA now says it's opened a disciplinary investigation into the incident. All right, still to come here on First Move, why pet food retailers are moving into healthcare for your four-legged friends. I speak to the CEO of Chewy and food delivery startup DoorDash goes public at a valuation of $38 billion. We dig into the details. That's next. Welcome back to First Move, coming to you live from New York, where it's still looking like a mostly higher start to the trading day. The Dow and the S&P 500 are on track to open in record territory on continued optimism over vaccines and U.S. stimulus. The White House is now proposing a $916 billion stimulus package. That includes a new round of stimulus checks, but no boost to weekly benefits. That will surely, of course, be a sticking point uh, for Democrats. Greg Vallier joins us live now. He's the chief, chief U.S. policy strategist at 
AGF Investments. Greg, thank you so much for being with us at a time when a lot of Americans are struggling right now to put food on the table. They can barely survive. You're seeing Wall Street, um, as usual this year, um, in record territory, Dow and the S&P 500 especially. So, so just walk us through that. Why is there still, still this massive disconnect between what's happening on Wall Street and Main Street? Well, I think three things, Zane. Good morning. Number one, I think Wall Street realizes that a vaccine is on the way, you know, by uh, late winter, early spring. Number two, we still see signs that the Federal Reserve is extraordinarily accommodative, just remarkably accommodative, and will stay that way for another two or three years. And now, number three, the growing likelihood that we will get a stimulus package. It may take a few more days. It's still uh, sort of up in the air, but I do think we'll get a deal. Okay, so there is a likelihood that we will have a deal. But when you think about the numbers that that Secretary Mnuchin put forward, is $916 billion actually enough, just given the dire straits the economy is in? Um, It's significantly less than what we saw earlier in the year. Plus the fact that the direct payments have been cut in half. They're now $600 uh, to ordinary Americans. And then on top of that, for those Americans who are no longer working, they no longer have their unemployment insurance. Is this enough? No, it's not. Uh, I think there should be a lot more and there probably will be more uh, if the Georgia Senate races uh, go in the right direction for the Democrats. Uh, I think Joe Biden, uh, within a week after his January 20th inauguration, will have another stimulus bill ready to go. But to answer your question, no, it is not enough. Um, Obviously, one of the major sticking points is the fact that, well, on the one hand, you've got uh, questions over liability insurance for businesses. But on the other hand, one key point that Democrats were really excited about was making sure that state and local governments really had enough funding. What has been what has been the impact on the coffers of state and local governments this year during this pandemic? They have lost billions of dollars in revenue. Yeah, quite simply, their revenues are way, way down and their expenses are way, way up. And that uh, that's going to continue. I would prefer to take the glass half full on this one. It looks like the deal that Mnuchin and others were talking about will have something for state and local governments. Uh, It looks like they and Mitch McConnell have come up to the higher number, 916 billion, still not enough, I agree. And it looks like maybe McConnell will cave on liability protection for companies that face lawsuits. He indicated yesterday he might be willing to wait until next year to address that. Um, One of the issues that Republicans have had, which is why the deal is uh, significantly lower than, than what it was, why the package is, I say, only $916 billion, is that they're concerned over uh, current and projected federal deficits. Is that a valid concern, do you think, at a time like this? Deficits are high. We had a new number yesterday for the last month. The deficits are quite extraordinary, but I wouldn't lose any sleep over it. Uh, debt servicing costs are remarkably low because Jerome Powell and the Fed will keep interest rates, the Fed funds rate, close to zero. So I wouldn't worry about servicing the debt. I think first you have to save the patient. First you have to do triage before you have to begin to worry about a deficit. Um, And in terms of the Christmas holidays, you know, this is usually a very big month for retailers. Um, Aside from the pandemic and people just not wanting to be out and about as much in stores, obviously a lot of people are going to be online shopping. But you've also got the fact that, you know, without that direct payment of $1,200, for example, now it's only $600. And without the unemployment insurance, the weekly unemployment insurance of of $300, a lot of people are not going to have the money to spend uh, this year on lavish Christmas gifts. What do you think the impact will be 
on retailers this year especially? I think we're looking at a very soft period for the economy. I think that GDP in the first quarter could be close to flat. However, I do think by the time we get to May, June, things will look dramatically better, much, much better. But there's no way of sugarcoating it. The economy looks bad for three months, and most importantly, fatalities look terrible for the next three months. And, and so uh, quickly, Greg, you know, likelihood, likelihood of, of a deal, um, of a deal just in terms of what Steve Mnuchin has put forward, what are your chances, what are the chances of Democrats and Republicans coming together here? I'd say 70, 75%. I think that moderates, centrists are putting together a good faith bipartisan deal. I think we get one in about 10 days. All right. Uh, Greg Vallier, live for us there. Uh, Thank you so much of AGF Investments. The opening bell is after the short break. Don't go away. back to first move. The U.S. stocks are up and running this Wednesday. And as you can see there uh, from the opening bell, there is so much excitement as DoorDash makes its debut. This year has really meant a boon for a lot of delivery companies because restaurants have been shuttered. Uh, This particular food delivery startup has priced its shares at $102 a piece, uh, well over initial targets. That shows that there has been some investor appetite. They've raised well over $3 billion. They're now valued at around $39 billion. As we wait and see that opening trade from DoorDash, U.S. stocks are mixed. Value-oriented stocks that will do well when vaccines roll out and and economies improve are outperforming tech and early trading. Investors are encouraged today by signs that Washington may be moving closer to a stimulus deal after months of debate. One stock making big moves in early trading is FireEye. Shares of the cybersecurity firm are down by more than 8% on news that it was a victim of a sophisticated cyber attack. The company says hackers stole security testing tools. and today, the Brazilian airline Gold becomes the first airline to fly passengers on the Boeing 737 MAX since it was grounded worldwide nearly two years ago. So far, Brazil and the U.S. are the only countries to have cleared the commercial airliner to fly passengers. Uh, John Defterios joins us live now. So clearly, John, uh, Boeing is very, very keen to put the, those two air disasters, Ethiopian Air, mm-hmm. Lion Air, in the rearview mirror, um, how crucial are these 737 MAX deliveries for Boeing being able to turn a corner here? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting and unusual that it was Gold, the Brazilian carrier, Zane, that decided to proceed uh, going into the commercial flights uh, first uh, today, in fact, uh, taking place. But Gold's been a huge supporter of the 737 MAX. It has seven in the fleet and it's adding 95. Uh, And I think this is an opportunity for Boeing to say, now the worst is behind us. It cost us $20 billion, not counting the legal settlements because of those uh, crashes. I would say the uh, U.S. carriers are taking a more tepid approach uh, to this. American Airlines is going to launch on December 29th with a flight between Miami and uh, New York LaGuardia Airport. United Airlines on February 11th with 11 flights. And then Alaska Air is going to follow a few weeks later. Now, it's interesting with Southwest Airlines is taking deliveries of the planes 
but it only said that it's going to start flying in the spring of 2021. It has not outlined what the plan is for that. But it's been a terrible year for the airline industry and for Boeing, uh, just basically delivering 118 planes. It's about a third of what they did in 2019. And you have to think about restoring confidence, Zane. A goal, for example, is saying to the passengers, if you realize it's a 737 MAX and you don't want to fly it, uh, we'll let you change your tickets for free to get onto another uh, aircraft if that's your uh, desire. And I think this is going to be a challenge to restore the confidence uh, in the airplane. And, and just what are, the, what are the order books look like for Boeing just going forward? I mean, obviously you say a key, a key sort of uh, headwind for them is, is their ability to restore trust. You've got goal making various concessions mm. to customers. But, but what do the order books look like? How many other airlines are, are ordering at this point? Well, they are improving. I mean, for example, uh, symbolically, uh, United Airlines took a delivery yesterday of a 737 MAX. Uh, Ryanair, the largest low-cost carrier, is uh, adding to its fleet 95 to take it up to 210, uh, even though the regulators in Europe have held back. And same thing in Canada, although we know that the decision is supposed to be imminent. But this is a primary narrative of cancellations. We're looking at about uh, 500 for the 737 MAX uh, for Boeing. So it does take time to kind of restore the uh, confidence on that front. And you have to think about, Zane, uh, a double whammy for this industry. You had the Boeing jet uh, disasters in 18 and 19 that you talked about, uh, basically hitting the turbulence of COVID-19 and the slowdown in traffic. The U.S. Department of Transportation just yesterday said that year on year, October to October, that passenger traffic in the United States was down, what, 62%. And that's a very similar tale from the Middle East to Asia, 60, 70, sometimes even more in terms of the fall of passenger traffic. And the carriers next year are supposed to lose another $38 billion. This is something very difficult for Boeing as it tries to restore the luster of the 737 MAX, which is basically very efficient on fuel. I just had those major setbacks and that's gonna be difficult. Right. Well, with, with, the, with the idea of a vaccine, um, hopefully bringing some light at the end of the tunnel, we'll see what that means for Boeing next year. Uh, John Defteris, live for us there from Abu Dhabi. Thank you so much. All right. Online pet food supplier Chewy reported a 45% sales surge in the third quarter. This as the pandemic kept pet owners at home and sent animal adoption rates skyrocketing. Now the company plans to move into pet healthcare. Um, joining me now is Summit Singh, who's the CEO of Chewy. Summit, thank you so much for being with us. So, I mean, this year has been quite phenomenal for Chewy. When you think about the numbers, shares have soared between 150 to 200 percent this year. From February to July alone, you added more com- customers than in all of uh, fiscal 2019. Um, your shares started about $30 a share earlier this year. They shot up to $72 in October. You're now valued at $30 billion. Just walk us through what this year, 2020, with the pandemic and all, more people wanting to adopt pets, that sort of thing. What has this meant for your business? Good morning, Zane. It's good to be here. Um, well, you've summarized it ap- aptly, uh, right? We were enjoying, see, pet is an emotive category. And we were already on a mission of acquiring customers. We play in the United States today, not internationally. We were already on a mission of acquiring customers and the customers that we acquire, we actually build long-term relationships with. So we have a really large active customer base that has grown to almost 18 million customers as of of Q3. And what the pandemic has done is the secular shift that we were enjoying 
uh, you know, from into e-commerce, it's accelerated that secular shift even more. So, uh, you know, quarters of growth that were supposed to happen over the next several quarters have been compressed into this particular year. And, uh, you know, clearly Chewy has been a beneficiary of that. And a lot of credit to the team that's actually been preparing, uh, you know, to be able to handle a surge in volume in the capabilities that we've developed over the last past years, so that when the demand ultimately came in the manner that it did, we were ready to take it head on and service millions of pet parents across the United States. Uh, we're happy to be in this position. We're proud to be in this position, rather. But, but there must have been, at the very beginning, I'm talking February, March, there must have been some kind of panic um, just in terms of how quickly demand changed. I mean, were you ready? Just talk to us about shipping, fulfilling orders, back orders, that sort of thing. That must have been, that must have, to some degree, caught you guys off guard. It certainly did. Uh, look, you know, we... Typically, uh, e-commerce peaks during the Q4 time period of the holiday season that we're in right now. But the holiday season is a planned, prepared interval. Uh, like, you, like you mentioned, the pandemic arrived in February unannounced, and clearly it took us, all of us by surprise. But I think that's the mark of a good team and good leadership and good capability of a company. You know, we got behind it very quickly. We decided to get our core leadership together and we said, all right, let's communicate that next couple of weeks, perhaps even months, because we weren't clear what we were stepping into are going to be super tough. We had a couple of key decisions to take. Uh, one, we had to move our workforce offsite very quickly. And we're a young company, nine-year-old company. We'd never worked from home before. So nearly over a period of three to four weeks, we transitioned uh, you know, approximately three to 4,000 people you know, to working from home without disrupting customer experience. Mm -hmm. uh, freight and logistics were pressured. Uh, In-stock, uh, you know, levels went down from our peak of 99% in-stock that we like to maintain down to 70% levels for a few weeks. But we rebounded back really strongly because of our strength in supply chain planning and general customer orientation. So it's been a, it's been a year of learning. It's been a year of transparency, of innovating on customers' behalf. And, and of perseverance. It's been a roller coaster ride, I'm sure. So DoorDash, is, DoorDash is IPOing today. Um, they had an amazing year, obviously, because unfortunately restaurants were closed and so people relied on, on, on delivery apps. Um, but there's a lot of question about what they're going to do next year when, after there's a vaccine, um, people, restaurants start opening again, everything goes back to normal. Are you guys in sort of the same boat whereby, yes, you had an amazing year because obviously people were stuck at home, they were isolated, they longed for companionship in terms of four-legged furry friends. But then next year, especially as there's a vaccine on the horizon, people are going to go back into the offices, everything's going to return back to normal. How do you sustain that level of growth going forward? Yeah, you know, we actually believe that not only has the pandemic accelerated the shift, we believe that that acceleration, not only will the acceleration continue into online, uh, we also believe that the shift is likely permanent to a large degree. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The first one is, as I mentioned, pet is an emotive category. Once we capture hearts and minds of consumers and we provide you the peace of mind and unparalleled customer experience, you really don't have a reason to go back and shop anywhere else. And we've shown that, Zane. If you look at the way that we acquire customers and grow cohort behavior, we, we can show via data that customers over time end up shifting their entire share of wallet to Chewy. That's really unlikely and unheard of in other categories uh, you know, that drive e-commerce penetration. The second one is, while most of the economy has been down and stores have been shut down, pets has been an essential category. 
So, so consumers have had the opportunity to step out as the pandemic has eased, and yet our retention is stronger by over 600 basis points year to date. So even when consumers had the opportunity to step out and revert back to their own behavior, they didn't. They chose to stick with Chewy. So we're bullish and optimistic on the trends in the future to come. All right. So you have faith in the future. So I guess the big question is, um, and unfortunately, we don't have time for this. It's a big question about uh, the main goal really going forward is really the path to profitability because you're still making losses. But uh, Summit Singh, we do have to leave it there. Thank you so much for being with us. Robots are on the rise, but not quite as fast as many people have thought. We'll bring you the details of two years of research into that particular subject. There's been a coronavirus scare on board a Royal Caribbean cruise. The ship turned back after a single case emerged. Christy Lustow reports. In Singapore, a cruise to nowhere was turned back after a passenger tested positive for COVID-19. Royal Caribbean confirmed to CNN that a passenger tested positive for the virus after checking in with a member of the ship's medical team. Now, the cruise then informed Singaporean officials of the news and turned back to port. Now, all the guests were not permitted to disembark until full contact tracing measures were carried out. In a statement, Royal Caribbean said this, quote, we work closely with the government to develop a thorough system that tests and monitors all guests and crews and follows public health best practices. That we were able to quickly identify this single case and take immediate action is a sign that the system is working as it was designed to do. Uh, the Royal Caribbean cruise ship, it was called the Quantum of the Seas, was hosting a four-day, three-night cruise for Singaporeans around Singapore. It's part of a plan to boost domestic tourism in the city-state in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And the case of COVID-19 on board this cruise ship to nowhere is just another setback for Singapore. Just a month after it was forced to cancel its plans to open a, a quarantine-free travel bubble with Hong Kong. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. The pandemic has made millions of people either redundant or worried about their jobs. Before the coronavirus outbreak, though, one of the biggest concerns in the workforce was a seemingly imminent rise of robots and automation. But how much of a threat is that really and how soon exactly? The Massachusetts Institute of Technology has recently published the results of two years of research. It says the advancements have been a lot slower than many people feared. There will be plenty of job openings in the next decades. But to come, but more worker training is certainly required. Without it, the decades-old inequality in the U.S. labor market will only get worse. Julia spoke with one of the authors of the MIT report, David Ortor, and asked him how that inequality was being affected by the pandemic. Well, very unfortunately, the pandemic just seems to be an accelerant on this fire in terms of, you know, it's basically been in net uh, almost harmless or even beneficial to people in um, you know, many highly paid jobs where they can do their work remotely, they now commute less, uh, they use their time more productively and they are, their consumption has not fallen. Uh, they're just, you know, money they would have spent on travel, they're spending on you know, remodeling their homes and so on. But for uh, workers who do hands-on work, many of whom are low paid, that's not true for all uh, hands-on workers, obviously medical doctors and nurses are, are not low paid and they do hands-on work, but for many people who do you know, driving and cleaning and food service and so on, uh, they are exposed to additional disease risk. Uh, their uh, their pay is not commensurate with the degree of risk that they are uh, they are bearing. And moreover, we expect that 
because of the long-term decline in commuting to work, in business travel, in retail sales, uh, there's going to be less opportunity and less uh, demand for workers who do those kinds of jobs. So how do we tackle this? Do we have to look at it and say it's essential that more than 40% of the population get a college degree education or we have to incentivize businesses to maybe via tax incentives to continue to skill their employees and allow them to continue to add to their skills. Can you give me a set of ideas and policies that the next administration need to focus on? Because it feels like time's running out. We have to act now. Sure. So so I certainly agree with the thrust of your question that skills is an essential part of it. It doesn't all have to be college degrees. It can be, uh, you know, skilled vocational training. There are good high paying jobs in the trades and construction and plumbing and electrical work. There are good high paying jobs in healthcare, health paraprofessions that don't require a four year college degree, um, but are uh, well remunerated and have a, you know, a very uh, secure and robust future. But they require concentrated skills investments, even if it's not a four-year college program, and those are uh, can be expensive, and it's also difficult for people to know uh, what type of skills to acquire. But let me just say, building better workers is not itself sufficient. We need to be focused on building better jobs. What would that mm. require? Well, uh, one place to start would be to have a, uh, a reasonable level, a well-calibrated level of the federal minimum wage, which has basically sank to the point of irrelevance at this point. The U.S. minimum wage uh, at present is about the same level as it was in 1950. Uh, so we could raise it to a meaningful number and then uh, index it to the median wage so it doesn't keep you know, uh, uh, sinking again as uh, inflation inevitably occurs. That's one point. A second thing we could do, and this is hard, is we should separate the provision of health care from employment. That is, uh, creates added insecurity because when people lose jobs, they potentially lose access to health care. It also creates a burden on employers and kind of distorts the employment relationship in a way that is just totally unnecessary. All right, still to come here, the Dash to DoorDash, the food delivery startup is serving up its mega IPO today. Should investors bite? All that and more coming up. All right, let's take one last look at U.S. markets. We are higher in early trading. The down the S&P 500 are in record territory yet again. All this is Wall Street awaits the opening trade of IPO DoorDash. The food delivery firm is going public today in a deal valuing the company at an eye-watering $39 billion. Airbnb is expected to price its shares later today. Airbnb is going to be beginning trading uh, tomorrow. Paul and Monica joins us live now. So, Paul, I do want to start with the market because we are seeing fresh record highs. Uh, Despite the chasm between Wall Street and Main Street, it does appear that there is a lot of investor optimism about the potential stimulus package that they hope will be passed. Yeah, I think stimulus and vaccine hopes. And it's unfortunate, Zane. I mean, we we point out a lot that the market is forward looking and investors are expecting that in 2021, the economy will be in better shape because of stimulus and a vaccine. But neither of them are here yet. So if you are an average consumer waiting for a stimulus check or some form of stimulus payments, if you're a small business, optimism about the future doesn't help right now, especially right around the holidays. Talk about uh, DoorDash going public today. I mean, what what do you think are the prospects of DoorDash? Just given that it faces a lot of competition from Uber, from the new owners of Grubhub, for example, and then plus when there's a vaccine and everyone goes back to work and restaurants open up again, things could be different for them. 
I agree. This is, I think, a risky uh, bet right now, given the excessive optimism surrounding the DoorDash IPO. I mean, you have valuations surging, you know, nearly $40 billion for a company that, by the way, is not yet profitable. The revenue growth is stunning. But as you point out, Uber is a major competitor. Grubhub getting taken over by Just Eat Takeaway is now uh, part of a larger company as well. And I think you're right that there are probably a lot of consumers, average Americans, that would love the idea of going out again to a restaurant if there's a vaccine and they feel safe. I mean, heck, I, I can't wait to get the babysitter so my <laughs> wife and I go out for dinner. I hear that's you. A 2022 story, but yeah, we'll uh, see. But with, with Airbnb, just quickly, it's the opposite story because they got hammered this year. But at the same time, next year, as things actually open up again, obviously they're going public tomorrow. Next year, as things open up again, um, the future picture for them is actually much brighter. Exactly. Airbnb's revenues are suffering now, dropping precipitously during the pandemic, uh, and they are losing money as well. But I think that Airbnb is in a much better competitive position going forward because they're really disrupting the hotel chains right now. And the hotels are having a worse sales decline than Airbnb is. So Airbnb is a category killer. You can't say that about DoorDash. All right, Paula Monica, live for us there. Thank you. 2020 has certainly been a rough year and it isn't even over yet. How on earth did people make sense of it? Well, Google has some answers, as you expect. Election results was one of the biggest trending searches. Also, I'm guilty of this, coronavirus was heavily searched as well. And Zoom, as all of us looked for uh, ways to stay more more connected with our colleagues, friends and families. A lot of other timely stuff made the list, like, for example, stimulus checks, sourdough bread, social distancing date ideas, people going on dates on Zoom, for example, and PlayStation 5. Along with the questions like, why is the NBA postponed? And why on earth is toilet paper sold out? I'm still scratching my head over that one. All right, that is First Move. I'm Zane Asher. Julie's going to be back tomorrow. Connect the World is up next. You are, of course, watching CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.